Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And as always, at the end of each month, uh, we have an episode with Emily Jashinsky. Uh, she is the culture editor over at The Federalist. She is a fellow, a senior fellow uh, with us at IW, at IWF. Um, she teaches intrepid young conservative journalists how to circumvent the current media environment and become real journalists over at Young Americans Foundation. And she has a show uh, every Friday um, on, with Ryan Grimm over at Breaking Points. Um, so with with Crystal and Sager, they, they sub in for Crystal and Sager every Friday where she argues with communists and, and nevertheless seems to have some kind of productive discussion over there. Um, but welcome back, Emily. Uh, Inez, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure because this is how I keep my calendar. I know it's the end of the month when Inez is like, hey, what time can you record High Noon? <laughs> yeah, that's also how I keep my calendar, except that the next time around, it'll be um, already Christmas. So I can't believe that we are closing, coming very close to the end of 2022. Um, so I want to kick it off by talking about something we are recording on Monday, which means this just happened. Um, Elon Musk is tweeting uh, about going to war with Apple. Um, and that is because uh, Apple is threatening to drop the Twitter app out of its app store. Um, Musk is accusing them of censorship. And, and the reason I wanted to kick this off with that subject um, is I think this is something that our, our friend Rachel Bobard talks about all the time. Um, there are structural constraints uh, within the tech market that are in some ways way more concerning than any particular uh, sort of censorship on any particular website, even one as influential as Twitter. Uh, there, there are these kind of structures where if you don't get into the Apple app marketplace um, it, or in, in other fields, it's also Amazon, um, Amazon hosting services. So that you're getting more into hosting services, um, sort of um, connectors and places where people can actually access uh, your product. Um, when those channels are uh, implementing a kind of terms of service or, or um, attempting to control what kind of discourse happens on the internet. I mean, what do you, what do you make of all this? Musk says he's going to war. I mean, are we once again marching into um, <laughs> marching into the arena with our Rock'em Sock'em billionaire against the world? Um, what 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 is going to go down in this this kind of um, this kind of conflict, and what does it show us about the structure of how the private market actually exists today? Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about Amazon Web Services or banks, for instance, you're talking about how the uh, if I have to sneeze. <coughs> Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, the, we're talking about how the means of production have been seized. I mean, truly, that's what happens when you hang out with, with Ryan Grimm and a bunch of communists for too long, you start talking about seizing the means of production. Well, and this is when people talk about cultural Marxism. It's, I've always seen that as kind of an oxymoron because, uh, it's something that Marx himself sort of was critical of the, the culture being co-opted by, uh, corporate interests or elite interests. Um, that doesn't mean that Marx accurately understood how it would happen um, and, and, and was prescient to understand how it would happen. But I do think um, the, the cultural Marxism that we see now, I, I don't think that's a bad way to understand it because they really have seized the means of cultural production. Um, and, and that's what Amazon Web Services is. That's what banks are. That's what uh, Google ads uh, Google ad service is. That's what YouTube is. Um, and so Elon Musk, I think inevitably was going to have to grapple with that because people aren't just going to be bowled over by one billionaire, right? Like the woke order is not that fragile um, because it is now deeply embedded into the uh, self uh, perception of so many people. It, it is their moral code. It is how they determine whether or not their life is one worth worth living, because this is how they see good versus evil. This is how they see, you know, and, and they're in very important, powerful positions at companies like Apple, Amazon, JP Morgan, you can go down the list. Um, so it's, it's really not that fragile. That isn't to say it can't be toppled. And I think that's sort of like you said, a rock'em sock'em billionaire, that's a great way to say it, um, testing the limits 
parents and continuing to push and push and push and see if, you know, maybe the, the boomers, the anti-woke boomers uh, that still have positions of power, occupy positions of power at those companies ultimately cave, recognizing that it's a threat to their bottom line. Um, I, I don't know if it is even a threat to their bottom line because they have monopoly power in so many cases. Um, so that's, that's yet to be determined, but I do think that's what it was inevitable that it would get to the most basic building blocks, the foundation of our society, because that's where a lot of the power has been consolidated. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm almost looped back to my initial assessment when Musk was just making noise about buying Twitter. It's, it is a good stress test of the system. If even that amount of money and determination cannot overcome it, now maybe he can. I mean, I, I I don't think of him as any kind of conservative savior, but I do have a certain amount of trust in his business acumen. I think he knows what he's doing and he's obviously a billionaire for a reason. Um, so I, I, I do um, sort of uh, like trust him on that, that level, not, not the ideological level to actually know what he's doing and not to, it's a little funny, all these people like sort of second guessing his business decisions. I mean, yeah, it's, it's in the public domain, but I freely admit I don't know nearly as much about running a business as Elon Musk. It's like it's funny to have all these reply guys uh, on Twitter being like, "Oh, Musk is such an idiot for running Twitter this way or that way." <laughs> but but I want to bounce something off of you and see what you think about it because um, I, I think this is about more than ideology, right? There's there's obviously there's this um, pretty uh strong ideological battle. Musk is not conservative, but he is dedicated to free speech. Um, obviously, there are elements of the left. Let's uh, pick on Taylor Lorenz just because that's so much fun um, over at the Washington Post saying, basically, we need to have the government get involved because we just cannot possibly um, deal with with a single major company that is actually not suppressing primarily right wing speech. That's dangerous. Free speech is dangerous. Right. There's obviously that entire angle to this. Um, I think one of the angles that's not being talked about as much in political circles, but is being talked about in tech circles is actually more important in a certain sense. And that is, this is, this is kind of a a test run for firing a lot of professional managerial kind of useless jobs, right? I'm firing people who have those kinds of jobs. It's not just the commissars, the political commissars. There's a lot of this kind of, diversity department um, or even just like sort of email job department dead weight in the economy right now. Now it's, it's adding to our GDP because their salaries become part of the GDP, obviously. Um, but I, there's an open question as to whether they're actually providing any kind of tangible service to anyone. And the fact that Musk can get away with cutting 70% of his workforce or having them take that buyout, uh, buyout that he essentially offered if he can make this work, I, I think the thing they're really more afraid of is this is going to paint a target on the back of every sort of useless email job um, that is in every one of these Fortune 500 companies, right as we might be going into hard times, recession times. I, I, I think they cannot let this succeed because in some sense, it's a proof of concept that you can run a successful tech company without... The, the sort of diversity bureaucracy and all of these useless email jobs. In fact, you can run it with a third of or less of the workforce. Yeah. And I think it's even more personal than that um, to so many of the blue, the blue checks on Twitter who didn't pay for their blue checks, but had had it and they were anointed uh, blue check by God, Jack Dorsey um, and, and wear that very proudly. I think it is really embedded into uh, their moral code because they never really had a moral code except for, you know, just being told that the like Christian order was backwards and anti-science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, by their condition to see that by basically every institution. Um, so I think people knew that was wrong. And uh, when all of this kind of came along in their educations um, and was, again, was presented to them as the objective uh, moral order of good people, um, then all of these these jobs sprang forth from that well. Um, companies sprang forth from that well. 
the new modes of communication. I mean, words like Latinx sprang forth from that well, and that's just one sort of silly example. But to cut against that grain is to cut against the moral fiber of so many of these people. Um, And so I think Elon Musk taking an absolute sledgehammer to those types of positions. I agree with you completely. I think it is a test um, in the same way I agree with you that Twitter in general is a a stress test of the economy. Um, I think this is like a stress test for wokeism. Um, And I think a lot of people are watching very closely to see if Elon Musk, who obviously anticipated the chaos um, I'm not like an Elon Musk, Elon Musk defender. I think he's like totally in bed with China. I have all kinds of problems with Tesla and government subsidies and corporate welfare. Um, but I do think that like he's not a complete idiot. He's a pretty close student of sort of woke culture. And I think he understood that this would be a huge battle and a chaotic battle. Um, and I think that's his point. So to see it play out that way, to see him not saying, oh, yeah, maybe I was wrong. Um, I'm going to talk about it with the the HR department and we're going to hash it out. But to see him just uh, utterly um, take a sledgehammer to, to those kinds of positions um, is a it's an existential threat um, to Silicon Valley's moral code, um, cultural moral code, not economic moral code so much, but uh, cultural moral code. And there's some overlap, obviously, with culture and economy. But um, this is who they this is what they thought the world should be. Um, And this is what they thought their lives should be. This is where they thought they would find meaning in jobs like these. Um, And if Elon Musk takes them away, if the public turns against them, if that marketplace dries up and disappears, they have a lot of useless credentials. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really what that, I think that's what the hysteria is about. I I think they're probably pretty confident. Look, they they will shut us up as much as they can. Um, And... I just I don't know that the the deep level of hysteria, especially from like um, tech outlets and stuff, is coming only from the ideological stuff. It seems like the ideological stuff is a gloss over, you know, we don't know how much of at this point of the U.S. economy is essentially fake jobs. (laughs) I, (laughs) I, I it's 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 an open question. I mean, whether this this kind of stuff actually generates any value, what it has generated is a pipeline from elite universities that have more control over whether or not people like over sort of the the gateways to success, the successful life than they ever have in the past. Um, There's that pipeline straight through that ideological indoctrination to increasing very plush positions, not just in the academy and in government, which is an older uh, sort of pipeline for these kinds of people, but directly into major corporations, right? All of corporate America. That This has been a very, very lucrative, powerful, culturally um, dominating class of people. And if Elon Musk proves that Twitter doesn't need them to be profitable, I think that is going to have major effects, economic effects, well beyond sort of whether or not I'm allowed to say that men and women aren't the same on Twitter. Yeah, because it it gets to whether or not a business can be organized around the concept or, or with embedded in it, not around the concept, but with embedded in its values, the idea that men and women are different. <laughs> um, meaning then, and that might sound like a silly thing, right? Like what on earth does that have to do with the business model of General Motors? Well, precisely, first of all, but secondly, it's that we have to sort of have a consensus on those things in order to function. Um, and clearly we don't. And it, it so obviously it seems like it has nothing to do with the business model of GM, right? But the left insisted that uh, it's that that orthodoxy on that question had everything to do with the business model of GM, meaning then you had to incorporate it into like literal physical economic reality. You had to spend dollars and cents and reorganize 
um, in order to sort of point at the dogma on you know, for for a company like General Motors, you had to point at the dogma on uh, sex and gender or on race. And that took an enormous amount of resources, obviously. Um, and it's also something that people reoriented their companies around. And our economy really was reoriented around, not entirely, but to a degree, human resources departments were at least, um, you know, sort of litigating these questions, um, but not even doing a litigation like these. These have already been settled. Um, trans rights, uh, the, the, the colorblind model is out the door. These do have major implications for the way businesses function. And when you sort of force um, the, the woke consensus on the population where that consensus doesn't exist, yeah, it's going to take immense resources. And as somebody like Elon Musk proving that uh, there's a market for, for different businesses and proving that he can increase the the bottom line of a company, perhaps, we don't know, but um, I would guess, uh, it seems like Twitter was enormously bloated for a little used social media network um, that was missing a lot of targets. So if he can come in and do that, he's actually just undermined um, the, the kind of business model that was popularized in the last decade. And a lot of people's careers will be affected and a lot of companies and organizations um, will be affected. Yeah, speaking of colorblindness and the differences between the sexes, um, there was that photo that was circulating of the people who actually ended up sticking around, right, um, after Musk sent out those emails. And the picture is like Elon Musk and like 25 Asian and Pakistani young men and like one chick in the background. <laughs> um, certainly a, a refutation of, of the diversity mantra. Um there, there is a, there's a sexed aspect to this. Um, I, th I think a disproportionate number of these BS jobs are filled by women. Um, and I don't have any particular statistics to back that up, but I think it's something that's observationally true, uh, that, that a lot of the HR departments are filled with women. And I mean, some of this is, is good and natural, right? Where it's women are more, um, more oriented and on average to, to want jobs that interact with people. Of course, the kind of interactions that we're likely to have with the madams of HR is uh, perhaps not the ideal of human interaction. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> the madams of HR. <laughs> you, you can put that on my, like, you can put that on my bio. <laughs> um, no, but, but uh there, there is this like sort of sexed aspect to this. Like, I don't think it's an accident that the people who ended up sticking around to work long, long hours um, and actually do a ton of real coding work are disproportionately look like they're men. Um, and the, the people who fill these kinds of, of here, I always, my go-to example is Michelle Obama making more than $400,000 a year to be the quote diversity coordinator of a large hospital. Um, this yeah. is before, I mean, this is very early on. I think Barack either hadn't run yet at all, even for Congress, um, or he was just a congressman. Um, but, but that's like kind of this ultimate in this kind of what I would call a BS job, right? Um, with a Princeton degree. Yeah. With a Princeton degree with $400,000. And that was back, you know, a couple decades ago before Biden inflation. So, um, this is a really, really well paying job. And there, there are a lot of, of these kinds of jobs, perhaps not at that extremely high compensation, um, compensation level, but certainly six, there's so many of these six figure jobs out there that it actually has kind of, um, provided the place for all these people, not only, to, to prove the the conservative mantra about them going out into the real world and encountering the real world and sort of uh, seeing the error of their ways, not only to prove that wrong, but actually a platform to shape the real world, right? Um, I, I've been saying for a while that underwater basket weaving metaphor that conservatives like is way outdated because there is a market for these DEI degrees. Um, mm -hmm. Wharton, I think, just started producing a pure, I think it was University of Pennsylvania or something, a pure DEI degree, like it's not even pretending to be anything else. It's just a degree in DEI. But if, if Elon can succeed with a major company like Twitter by cutting all of that, I think that is like, that, that's a huge, I'm repeating myself, but it's like, it's a huge challenge. Even one company being able to just sort of drop all this and become profitable as a result is going to become really, really tempting 
when it, especially when it looks like we are headed into hard times where fat is going to have to be cut from a lot of companies. I think it's a really good point because the question is how will decadence fare in hard times? Um, and I think, unfortunately, there's reason to be cynical because we've had this, it's not necessarily just a bifurcation, but we've had this sort of national economic divorce happening where over time, um, even as like wages have stagnated, real wages have stagnated for the middle class, uh, you have the stock market just going up year after year after year, like explosively going up year after year after year. A lot of this on the back of tech stocks, by the way. Um, and I, I, that'll, I think, you know, that there's already been some tightening and some course correction in the stock market on that front. Um, but there, there are very different economic realities for different people. And so the two things I would say is one, that's the case, um, that I don't know how much a recession actually will hurt uh, people at the very tippy top who make a lot of these decisions, hiring decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know how, um, I don't know how much the bottom line, this is the second part of what I was going to say, will matter when for a chunk of the C-suite folks, they are, this is so personal that it's their moral code. This is like what happened when, when Nietzsche said we killed God and could create our own moral codes. What stepped into the vacuum of the sort of godless West was this new moral code that is incoherent and is built on a house of sand, not on stone. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and so it, that is deeply ingrained in people's self-worth, um, self-perception in their daily lives. And so there's this competition, you know, between people who are the, the pure capitalists um, who just want to make money and the, you know, Jack Dorsey's who is going to give millions and millions of dollars to BLM. Uh, and I think that was the, the Black Lives Matter Global Foundation, which turned out to be and, and to Kendi. Yep. 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 Oh, yeah. I'm, I, I think I actually am thinking of Kendi um, and, and, you know, deeply in their heart of hearts believe that this is the Manichaean struggle between good and evil um, and just the pure capitalists. So I think there are a lot of pure capitalists who would see what would happen at Twitter um, and be like the David Sachs that are just like, F this, this is a definitive case study that we can trim the fat, get back to basics and make some damn money. And then there are going to be other people who, uh, you know, they can, they can take the hit, they can keep the fat because their reputations um, are as valuable to them. The reputations as sort of liberal progressive crusaders are as important to them as the money because, frankly, they, they probably will still have plenty of money. Um, I don't know, but I think it's a, a reasonable question as to whether just that, that uh, the code of the capitalist that used to sort of dominate like the robber baron age and was the engine of progress, um, the sort of fabled engine of progress that kept pushing us forward and forward and forward. Um, when you lose uh, the, that sort of tether with objective reality, um, you might be losing that engine to some degree in a super decadent society like ours. I, I don't know. That's just a, a sort of I'm, I'm conjecturing about what could be to come. You know, I, I think it's definitely generational. I mean, obviously, there are going to be individual exceptions, but I, mm -hmm. I, I think there's I, Musk is Gen X. Yeah, he must be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it I, I think as long as the people in the C-suite are essentially pre full indoctrination, um, I, I think that the profit impulse and, and I do think, again, not to point again to the hard times thing, um, but I think especially for those people who haven't replaced their source of meaning with this stuff, yeah. uh, I, I, they might be willing to tolerate a lot less of it if they have a counterexample. And children, they if they have children, um, kids in schools, families. Yep. I, I think I think, yeah, I think once the CEOs are um, the people who are now around 30 or under, I think it's going to be much, much harder because I think they are more existentially uh, bought into this. Uh, and actually, that, that leads me to our, our next topic I want to talk about. There's this horrible ad um, for the Canadian um, suicide program, M-A-I-D, made. Um, so it's assisted suicide program. And <laughs> there's a new ad campaign um, from a, actually a Canadian re retailer. And it's, it's basically an advertisement to kill yourself. Um, 
and, and you've seen this, Emily, and I think we were talking about this in our, our like um, sort of signal chats and stuff, but there's something incredibly creepy about how corporate and banal um, this ad is. Actually, uh, Peachy Keenan, who, who was a previous guest of this podcast, I think had the, the, the funniest take, which was this is a live, laugh, die um, instead of live, laugh, love, like target <laughs> aesthetic, you know, because um, it was that kind of there's there's people playing cellos and uh, there is a woman, you know, running around on the beach um, and, and it, it looks like an advertisement for, I don't know, a, a resort vacation or um, maybe increasingly sometimes for some medications that let you, uh, if you have some kind of problem, they'll release you. This medication will release you into life, except they're, they're talking about dying. Mm-hmm. They are advertising death as an, and, and the even more like kind of creepy implication to me was, oh, how you die says a lot about you. No, you know, like, uh, there's almost like this, this sort of class competition and keeping up with the Joneses, even in committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, but is I guess my question to you would be like, is this inevitable if we continue, if more and more uh, people are more bought in in an existential way, the existential way that you were referencing um, to the point where they don't care what it does to the bottom line. They don't care. They're, they're, this is this is their religion, their reason for um, existence. I mean, the left has a very schizophrenic view of suicide where on the one hand, they're advertising it like this as like the ultimate in autonomous sort of self-expression. And on the other hand, they're holding us all captive with the, the fake, by the way, threat that uh, there might be more suicides, for example, if we don't uh, chop off um, girls or allow the, the, the removal of girls' healthy breasts or um, for, for minor transition, right? So it's on the one hand, it's like this kind of toddler holding their breath, um, weapon in the discourse like oh if if you say a mean thing somebody somewhere will kill themselves um and and on the other hand they're they're advertising it as as a good thing as like a a end point of autonomous freedom yeah and one thing i would add to that is um this there's a really serious question um when we we get these sort of threats to your point that if you say, if you transgress against the boundaries of sort of progressive speech, somebody may kill themselves. It's it's kind of laughable in, in many senses, but I think we're getting to a point where uh, children who are conditioned to see um, hate crimes in like reality, biological sex, or maybe their parent not being uh, willing to to call them by a preferred pronoun and wanting them maybe to get help and, and saying that this dysphoria is just that. It, it is disordered thinking. It is something that you can seek help for and you can help correct, um, not sort of something to normalize and validate and to correct with physical altercations to your body, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what should be terrifying is that we're getting to a place where that level of fragility really does condition people younger than us Inez, to take drastic measures to think that you know if you think something is um hateful or violence and every institution has conditioned you to validate um that interpretation of it we are getting to the world is going to be a very very dangerous place for people just psychologically um on a daily basis and it's it's it makes me think, I mean, everyone references the Sarah Palin death panels thing in this context when we, we see the uh, glossy rise of um, you know, assisted suicide in countries like Canada and in, in Northern Europe. Um, but that's actually completely where this is going in a, a, a high-tech technocratic utopic uh, system. And I feel like we're in the very, very early stages of it. Uh, and the one thing that protects the human race is the the impulse of self-preservation, right? Like that is the one thing that protects people. Um, but when you tear away the meaning from life and you start telling people that, you know, the, the point of life is also in, you know, how you can curate your death um, and that there is really no meaning to floating through the ether 
and it can be a very comfortable, normal process to just check out of all of this because life is nasty, short, and brutish. Um, and we've, we've sort of always known that and there's really nothing you can do otherwise. You know, you can, you can live in the pod um, and that's really where we're going. And that's why I say I think we're in the very early stages of this. Um, you know, you, you can live in the pod and work on VR, not just Zoom, but virtual reality Zoom. Um, and you can minimize your work to 10 hours a week. You can uh, have the synthetic experience of sex via porn. You can have the synthetic experience of uh, purpose and meaning via video games um, and masculinity via, you know, Call of Duty on VR, whatever it is. Um, we're just sort of like careening towards that kind of reality at a very rapid clip. And uh, when you combine um, ads like the one that you're referencing with the imminent uh the, the, the sort of inevitable uh, reality that it, like what can humans withstand that sort of level of comfort and decadence um if the the means to uh, exist and the uh, justification for existence is stripped away yeah, um, to clarify the policy here, apparently uh, Canada, th this ad is an advance of an actual law and policy uh, change in Canada in March. Um, they're going to allow people whose sole criteria for requesting euthanasia is mental illness uh, to qualify right. for uh, this this euthanasia. And th this has been a good lesson for me because I, I actually have like, I have some instinct in favor of this, um, you know, in, in very uh, sort of selected cases when the, when the choice is between, you know, drawn out and painful, but but imminent and, um, you know, painless and taking control of those kinds of things. And, and I think that is like preface, a difficult. You have to preface your argument by saying as a godless heathen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I it was it's like I said, it's been a good lesson for me in, in the validity of slippery slopes, because. I have some, like, I, I don't think it's morally wrong, um, or at least I don't have the instinctive sense that it's morally wrong for somebody to essentially take it into their own hands. Um, and at, at a certain point of, of sort of mere pain or humiliation avoidance, um, I think that's a very different question. But it's, it's, it's been rapidly, the, the slippery slope on this has been, like, incredibly rapid, right? Um that we ha we only started really seriously discussing this as policy maybe 10 or 15 years ago in this very and of course that was the case that was used right somebody who is going to die in in the coming weeks uh, very painfully and right um and wants wants to uh take control of that process instead of suffering an immense amount of pain um th that that is like the sort of that was the test case that was put forward and <laughs> a mere couple years, 10 or 15 years ago was with the beginning of this discussion. I don't know when Canada first passed this program, but it was only several years ago. And we're already talking now about euthanizing anybody at any stage of life who requests it, including if they're just mentally ill. Um, and, and so, it, like I said, it's been, it's been a, a good, I mean, strange new respect for slippery slopes all over the place, I think. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the sort of, corporate nature of this is even creepier it's 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 like um futurama's suicide booths actually seem quite clinical and clean in comparison to this kind of like gauzy target aesthetic um you know sort of keeping up with the joneses way to advertise suicide um but is is that the end point of this kind of crisis where we don't acknowledge as you've said so many times that we're floating in sort of this this postmodernist morass. There is no objective truth, um, and people are grabbing on to. They're they're trying to mold a self conception, but it turns out that that like that self conception without boundaries of the body, without boundaries of of any kind of objective reality, without boundaries of, of religious ethics, um, turns out to completely confuse people and and lead them. Um, to accept incredible horrors or even embrace them. 
as part of their identity. And it leads them to sell them too. um, And to say, I'm selling these on the basis of this sort of, people wouldn't identify it this way, but this like libertarian um, idea of self-sovereignty and individualism, right? So like it's, it's moral for me to profit off of expanding this choice to others uh, because it is not the state's business to to regulate something very fundamental and you can have that conversation with abortion and marriage and uh you can have that conversation with drag queen story hour right like we can have that conversation kind of across the board about these issues um but i think it's a really fair question as to whether um I was actually just reading today, like some of, I think it was Irving Crystal's ruminations on this concept of like values, neutral republicanism and how that, that was really, we like to think of things that way. Um, but that's never really been possible. There's no like republicanism is not in and of itself values neutral. There's always values baked into the cake, so to speak, no pun intended. Um, but that's, where we're we're getting to a point where the uh, our inability to kind of understand collectively what values should what should look like i mean if you if you look at the so-called progressive center and the progressive left um they're completely advocating for the encroachment on individual freedom by the by not just the administrative state but the intelligence community they want to monitor political dissidents they want to empower the government to monitor political dissidents um under the the banner of democracy like they are repeatedly throwing out the label of democracy to justify um that like level of uh anti-democratic uh behavior and ultimately, I think what a lot of it is, um, is sort of finding pro-human boundaries, not anti-human, like uh, destruction of boundaries. And that's a project for both the business community and the political community. It can't just be one or the other because, um, you know, it, that's capitalism will sell you nihilism. Um, and and big government will uh, sell you nihilism if it brings more power to people who want it. Um, there's many lessons in that from the 20th century. Uh, so I think it's it's about rejecting anti-humanism wherever we see it, and that's kind of a nuanced enterprise because if you talk about, for instance, trans ideology, um, you know the. It's a, it's a very, like, people are genuinely suffering, and they're suffering from some reasons that have to do with, like, the, the big business, big government model here. Um, but it is anti-human to encourage children to block puberty. It's anti-human to encourage children um, to, you know, basically make themselves infertile before they have brains fully developed to make that capacity. It's anti-human to denigrate marriage and to downplay its important anti-human, to downplay the importance of children, anti-human to tell people that they can sort of live really far away from their families and eat fake food. And like all of this stuff is anti-human. And I think we're starting to recognize um, because a lot of it has happened so quickly that it's anti-human. But the question is whether we can catch up um, before we're, we're sort of just before we implode. You know, this is really the exchange of, of freedom for license. As, as you point out, it it is exactly the inverse of, um, the way our, most of our founders thought about these questions, um, which is, which is part of the reason why I, I, I really don't think I, I just I, I'm not convinced by the analysis that the Enlightenment was sort of the turning point of the problem here. Um, but but I can't I, wait for you to join the Lutheran Church. <laughs> um, well, for a lot of people, it sets the the Protestant Reformation right. That's when we all started to go wrong. Um, That's what I'm saying. So you, you <laughs> reject that argument. So you clearly belong in the Lutheran Church. Um, but but no, I mean, our, our founders thought about this the exact opposite way, and and even up to, until the early up through the early 1960s, you see this in the analysis in the courts, right, of different freedoms. So, um, you know, it, it it turns out that, for example, you have no First Amendment right to publish lies 
about people. Um, now we have very narrow defamation laws. Maybe we should, you know, maybe we should expand their scope, whatever. But that, that's a separate debate that I'm talking about. But um, even the way the courts talked about this was, you know, the purpose of the First Amendment is to protect political freedom, um, is to, pr- to protect people's ability to criticize and particularly politically criticize people in power. Um, anything incidental like the fact that we allow the New York Times to publish lies daily um, is because we don't trust the distinction of who's going to determine what is true and what is false. But like the underlying um, you know, assumption there is there is a truth and a falsity. And actually there is no First Amendment right to repeat falsehoods, for example. Um, it, it's simply that the, the, the structure of our government says that, you know, the government cannot be the one deciding what is true and what is false, because the way that they are, they're going to decide that is going to be convenient for themselves. But the, even I, this seems like a distinction without a difference to a lot of people. But I think it's a really important one. Um, just say, I mean, obscenity is the same way, right? License is only protected to the extent that it is protected by our system, because essentially of a pragmatic problem in, in handing that much power to fallible humans in charge of government who are going to use those, that power for their own ends, right? Um, obscenity is not protected under the First Amendment. And to the extent that we have arguments for its protection, it's because we're worried that government is not going to be able to distinguish between pornography and criticism, political criticism, <laughs> right? Because it would be convenient for them not to make those distinctions. Um, and I think that's actually really... Like there, there is a very important um, underlying distinction. Again, I know these sound like sort of legalistic um, differences, but but they aren't. Our our regime was supposed to protect the right to seek the truth. For that end, we have free speech, not for another end, right? It's it, free speech is not supposed to be the purpose of free speech is not pornography. To the extent that we cover por- pornography under first speech, free speech, it's because of the primary end of seeking and discovering the truth and the value of free speech in doing that. If you, if you lose that underlying idea that there is a truth that we are seeking it and seeking it as a good thing, all of this just turns into complete license. Yeah. And let's ask, why is it in America? um, the, The pornography went from being something that was hidden in the shadows to something that was celebrated. For instance, I still remember very clearly when ABC News did a very positive uh, documentary, short documentary on OnlyFans. Uh, and it was remarkable. Their only criticism of OnlyFans was that some people uh, didn't, weren't able to make enough money on it or had been subjected to um, you know, g- threats, et cetera, et cetera, which is a serious problem, of course, but not about like the fundamental exploitation <laughs> of a product like OnlyFans um, or any of the like places that allows people to go morally um and the people who are making money off of it like really it was the most um it was the most uh, positive thing any corporation uh, let alone disney could have produced on OnlyFans. um and so why is it that we went from point a to point b when we did um what happened to if we just if we're just in a vacuum talking about pornography what happened? Um, you know, it used to be that some things were shameful and that it would be shameful for somebody in business to be profiting off of these things. Um, and that was kind of the argument that Barry Goldwater advanced about the Civil Rights Act, right? That like, if somebody wants to have their racist business, um, it will push society to have better, better morals. The, the sort of just way to handle it is to allow the marketplace to punish bigotry. And we've sort of come to a consensus that uh, that, that was not the way to handle fundamental questions of people's human rights, like a, of uh, basic racism. Um, but then we are caught in this place where we're now not able to even define um, in the past, we weren't really able to define racism because uh, people wouldn't even acknowledge the humanity of black Americans. And now after sort of the, all of the blood and sweat and tears that was poured 
um, fighting to get to a place where we did, we once again can't define racism. In fact, some people like to define actual racial discrimination as anti-racism, and they are used as Ibram X. Kendi is by CBS um, to that end. Like he's a CBS commentary guy. It's just like insane how backwards all of this is, and I think it's it's happening um, for a reason, and the reason isn't. I mean, this brings us back to kind of the enlightenment, right? Uh, there, there's no way to get around it. Uh, things like changed, but there was a lot of decadence in societies before the enlightenment. Um, and it starts to happen when, when people are, are not able to find meaning. Um, and, and when you can't find meaning, I mean, there's a way that we can use the tools uh, technologically and morally of a post-enlightenment world uh, to to protect prosperity. And it's not always going to be easy and we're never going to get to a utopian uh, vision. We're never just going to be living peacefully um, in the world. What was it, Marx or Engels that said fishing in the morning and writing poetry in the evening or whatever it was? That is, we're never going to have that world um, because, you know, if, if you sort of have a at least a Christian perspective on the fall of man, it's just not going to happen. Uh, there's just no way to, to temper uh, man's sinfulness with, with government or, or culture in that way. But um, there are ways that sort of in a post-enlightenment world, uh, we can be better and we can ensure the most prosperity for the most amount of people. Um, but that relies on us being pro-human um, and not promoting um, you know, have, having a value system that understands what is good, what is healthy morally and physically for human beings. And we are so far afield from that right now. Um, we certainly are that. I mean, um, to the extent that I blame the Enlightenment for a lot of this, I think it's just the inevitability of prosperity, freeing people from scar scarcity um, yes. and the necessity to, to confront that. Um, we all need to be much poorer yeah. And in constant danger. <laughs> but but nobody's willing to do that, right? Like I mean that's 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 the, the apex kind of people, predator. people always say, even even the most trad types of people out there, right? They'll, they'll always preface their critiques of modernity by saying, Well, no we, no one wants to go back to the times where before antibiotics were invented and when, you know, um only uh, less than half of, of children made it to their fifth birthday and people just confronted death and destruction and despair um themselves and their families uh and we're always staring directly into the maw of starvation like nobody wants to go back to that and and that to me that's more of the like this project that we have now before us in this this modernity where at least in incredibly prosperous countries like america it's not that we've totally left scarcity behind but we have left it um behind in a way that humans have never really had the opportunity to do in all of human history. Yep. Um, and I, to, to that extent, like, th yes, I think that they're enlightenment values that built incredible prosperity, the likes of which the world prior to that had never seen. And to that extent, yeah, I blame, I mean, like I quote unquote blame the enlightenment, but I'm blaming the enlightenment for something that literally no one, not the most tratty of trads wants to reverse, right. Which is the prosperity itself. But I think that's just kind of the question we confront in our age, and especially as more and more countries move into um, that level of prosperity. Can we have our cake and eat it too? Like that? Can you have antibiotics and um... and meaning? Right. Yeah. And that, it's, it's an open. Is. It's an open question. I, I'm. I'm not sure. Um, but it. That's. That is like the question that confronts us all: is building a source of meaning outside of the scarcity that if if coming from my non-Christian perspective, we've evolved into and not having that friction, um, I think has created a lot of this sort of, uh, feeling of floating in the morass and like, um, and disconnection from, and, and disconnect, real ability to disconnect from incredibly important truths about the human person. Um, and, and your favorite culprit, right? Technology is certainly a massive help in that, right? Like all those things that you just listed um, from, from porn to VR, I would add, you know, um, the, the fact that like the fact that we can even, for example, arrest puberty and give people yes. cross sex hormones, right? Ryan Anderson was saying this um, on, on this podcast last week, but I mean, 
technology enables us to separate ourselves from some immutable facts about the human person and about nature um, and, and allows us to forget those. So in that sense, prosperity is the problem, but the solution can't be to go back to extreme starvation and poverty. No one wants that solution. So like we're kind of stuck with these problems as we, as we, uh, you know, kind of confront them. And I, I hope that we can find a way through it, but I don't see that, that path through the fog yet. And technology is a feature of human existence. It's not something unique to our age, although I think it's advanced at a rate that is, um, as uh, as Brett Weinstein and, and Heather Hang would say, is uh, eclipsing our ability to kind of along, uh, evolve alongside of it. And so, you know, fire is a technology. Uh, the wheel is a technology, and it's laughable to us, but it's actually true in the same way that mail is a technology in the way we enjoy it. Uh, air travel, all of these things we think about as being, like, or, or modern architecture, um, all of these things we think about as being sort of silly um, at one point were a new technology. And so technology is a feature um, but the, the hyper novelty question of right now is really a legitimate one. And that's the question that like, we haven't even started to act as though it's informing our politics, that it's informing the daily life of the subjects of any member of Congress, um, the readers of any media outlet. It's as though it's just the, the invisible hand of progress and there's nothing that we can do about it. And there's no questions we should ask. Um, and people like to laugh and say, you know, the, the metaverse is basically face planting. It's an entire embarrassment for meta, et cetera, et cetera, as though it's just dead on arrival. And that is going to be proven spectacularly wrong. Um, I'm always open to the possibility that I'll be proven spectacularly wrong. Uh, but I, I'm pretty confident that uh, the virtual reality technology we're seeing right now um, is on the cusp of, of really overtaking things. And if I'm wrong, I hope it's because enough people were sound the alarm and, and starting to realize um, that what is happening to us is uh, anti-human, but it gets to this question of, can you have your cake and eat it too? Can you have antibiotics and meaning? Um, and I think the reason I think the answer, of course, is yes, is because we've we've had it. I mean, everyone likes to look at the decades that they came of age in as the best and the golden years. Uh, but They're I think if you look... Work. I think if you look at the 1990s and the early 2000s, um, it wasn't really the end of history, as we now know. Uh, but there was a, a level of, I think, sexual, racial um, harmony that it's easy, of course, for a white, you know, upper middle class person to say that. And that's not just me, like, genuflecting and, uh, you know, doing the, the virtue signal. I mean, it's obviously coming from the perspective of uh, somebody who's uh, of a racial group that was never enslaved in this country. Uh, you know, there's a, I have a different perspective on it, I'm sure. But I think in the scope of human history, no people from so many different backgrounds, speaking so many different languages with so many different traditions, faith, faith traditions, um, any else, have lived together in a, a, a single country like the United States of America as they did um, in, in recent American history. And it feels like we've thrown a lot of that out the window. And what I think a lot of people like Saurabh Amari um, and probably Adrian Vermeule would counter that with is this is inevitable, right? Like you may get a period, a two-decade period of relative peace out of the post-Enlightenment sort of Republican order, values-neutral, so-called values-neutral order, but it will inevitably fall into decadence. You can't have uh, those periods, you, you can have those periods of peace, but you can't have them without then evolving, devolving into something worse. And I disagree with that because mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's, it's a matter of learning where the boundaries are um, and then sort of bringing them, bringing them back. Uh, and those questions of whether, you know, what, what to bring back and how to do it are, are huge. And I'm typically very pessimistic, but, um, and I'm pessimistic that we'll see that really happen in our lifetime. I think it's gonna be a very slow process, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that the, the human instant instinct to persevere is fairly strong and we have tools at our disposal to, um, uh, self-regulate. Um, I'm not saying for sure it'll happen, but I, I you know, I, I think of course it can be done. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly hope you're right. You know, cause I, I don't want uh, the future of the human race to be 
begging the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world to grant us legs on the <laughs> VR platform. <laughs> like, initially piloted it without legs, and then we just have to, like, like uh, Oliver Twist, we have to go and beg, <laughs> beg the overlords, the tech overlords, to please grant us legs um, in, in the VR universe. So that that seems like a pretty, uh, pretty dark future. I'm not really interested in, in participating yep. in. Yep. Um, but but before we uh, we wrap this up, I, I did want to like uh, point out a, a really um, great uh, sort of um, I guess I mean it, it's it's again showing showcasing just the the sort of bankruptcy of this worldview. Um, but there's there's this writer Alice Gribben. Um, she has a Substack under her name. She's she writes uh, she writes poetry and creates art of her own. But she's also in my mind a great art critic. She's written a, a bunch of essays. I think I've talked about them uh, on this podcast and. If not in this podcast, then on the the former newsletter Bright, like I, I I've been interacting with her work for a while, um, but she's pointing she points out on Twitter, um, she she highlights something uh, a plaque in uh, the the Art Institute in Chicago, um, and this is a plaque for a Cezanne painting, um, and it's commentary by another artist, right? So this is not just like somebody who has no connection to the world of art who wrote this, this kind of um, placard to put next to a Cezanne landscape. Um, I wonder what this landscape would have looked like to us without colonization. Would we care about Cezanne or his work better yet? Would there even be a Cezanne without colonization? Would it matter that he broke up uh, the picture plane? Would the idea of the picture plane even be an issue? How would we register the light between the branches? Could Cezanne have sur surveyed the land, creating a disintegrating picture plane if he was unaware of the disintegration happening at, um, on his, he and his countrymen's behalf in the likes of Algeria, the Congo, Vietnam, and the rest of France's colonies? I don't know if Cezanne had put two and two together, um, but how do you just see the formal properties of a painting, the scholarship, or the invention his work evokes without foregrounding that history? Right. So this is the commentary in a museum of, of Sun painting. And Alice's commentary is, is uh, you know, basically to say that she'll never be um, unimpressed by the Philistinism of, of this kind of, of uh, view of art. Right. Like to, to be able to look at a Cezanne painting in person. And this is like what you come out, come away with. Right. This is this is what you come away with is this sort of litany of genuflections that are all entirely self-aware and are, are entirely, I mean, not interacting with the art as a work at all, um, only with alleged context, right? Um, I mean, is there, it seems to me that this, this kind of artistic movement, the guy who pens that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of placard in, in the Art Institute, right? It seems to me that has hit a dead end. As much as we've been talking about an existential dead end, there's an artistic dead end that is actually very concretely happening right now. And I don't mean just the usual conservative critiques of like modern art or whatever. Like there seems to actually be some kind of real break. I think it's what's actually generating a lot of the energy around the sort of dime square um, or sort of movement or whatever uh, in, in Manhattan to the extent the New York Times is written that up and all that but like even in other places i think i think the in this case the the able the ability to harness some of these technologies to go around um a lot of the institutionalized um sort of gatekeepers in the art world who are only interested in that kind of placard i mean how how much potential does art have um i'll leave you with this very very uh, easy question you should be able to spit out in a couple couple uh, sentences and answer this for us all uh, once and for all. Um, obviously not. But uh, to close out, I'd like your thoughts on whether art can contribute to, or how art can contribute to this project that you've laid out for modernity of essentially maintaining some level of, of humanization, of, of not living in an inhuman world. It seems like one of the most human qualities we might have is this ability to create and interact with art. Um, you know, is that like just part of our, our uh, human condition? Are we going to be able to break out of those kind of structures through art or, or is it going to be more out of political discourse? Cause I could see, I don't, I don't think the dime square scene is going to produce anything sort of, of worth politically, but I could see if they produce like, for example, 
uh, art movement that might have more impact than anything that anybody working in think tanks in Washington, D.C. might do. So what do you think about that avenue of breaking through this this kind of morass? Yeah, and, and you mentioned when we were thinking about uh, what to talk about today, the movie Tar, which I have, you know, I, I could rattle off a critique of, um, you know, the, the most succinct way I could put it is that it's one of those 800 page mm-hmm. novels that's like 600 pages too long, uh, meaning that like there's a great kernel of truth and beauty in it but it's sort of indulgent um beyond the point of of uh being worthwhile um but tar is a great example you take kate blanchett and she's out there uh in in the press tour for the film talking about uh, really just objecting to the ideology that seized Hollywood for so long. Emily Blunt is out there doing the exact same thing and where that would have been a PR disaster for both of them two years ago. We have gotten to a place um, where it's sort of like people bat an eyelid. There's a there, bat an eye. There's a clickbait headline on uh, you know Us Weekly or wherever, or you know the uh, clickbait headline on a news outlet, and everybody moves on because the the industry has realized people don't care, and if to the extent they do care, they like what Kate Blanchett is saying because it's interesting, and she's an artist, and she's an artist, and artists should be interesting. Um, so I think you've seen it in comedy too, which conservatives, including myself, um, sort of zeroed in on for a long time as like the heart of the culture war. Um, it's it's really that that sort of uh, ideology of safetyism and comedy has just gotten a kick in the ass. Um, it really has been destroyed by, as you were saying, and as these new tools, YouTube, Instagram, uh, TikTok to some extent, uh, where anti-woke comedians, um, including some mainstream people like Joe Rogan and the folks he has on his show, um, Dave Chappelle, you know, the, the woke crowd likes to say, Dave Chappelle is not brave. You know, how does, how is cancel culture a problem when Dave Chappelle is getting Netflix specials, et cetera, et cetera. Well, because he's still facing penalties for it, of course. Um, but that's, Baiting. I mean, it's not at the fever pitch that it was. And and this brings us full circle to what we were talking about earlier in the show. I really think that the, the ideology that uh, informed so much of this in so many corridors of power is not going anywhere. Um, but I do think what we're seeing right now is it losing some power struggle tug of wars um, to the extent that it wasn't or in a way that it wasn't two or three years ago. Um, that doesn't mean it's not ultimately going to win, but it does mean that there are some people who have been convinced over the course of the last couple of years. Those some people take away from the power um, of the others, but for the, the others, it is so deeply embedded. We're going to be dealing with this literally for years and years and years to come. So like what happens in the next five years isn't going to change the formative experience a lot of people had in their youth of learning that this is what the Manichaean struggle between good and evil actually looks like. I mean, that's a deprogramming, um, a deprogramming to say, you know, reality exists and it is objective and beauty exists and it is objective. Um, and so I think what we're heading into is a long period, a long tug of war um, where you have Kate Blanchett, uh, but you also have, you know, let's say, uh, what's her name? Um, uh, I, I can't even remember. Um, she was so prominent during Me Too. You know who I'm talking about? Um, Alyssa Milano. Alyssa Milano. Yes, it is. So you have <laughs> Kate Blanchett. with her once at Congress. Oh, I was, oh that's that right. You really, did. I was really shocked, by the way, by somebody. Um, she, she was very nice, but she was totally freaked out by testifying in front of Congress. And I was like, how can you be freaked out? You're an actress. No, this is the like, Hollywood Washington thing. The Hollywood <laughs> people are just absolutely awed by Washington the same way Washington people are awed by Hollywood but they can have each other (laughs) but you're gonna have the the, it's it's a battle between Kate Blanchett and Alyssa Alyssa Milano like that is the foremost power struggle of our time going forward like you're going to have people who are interesting and are making really good art and then you're going to have other people who are trying to suppress 
the really good art and both of them it, it, you know there's always people like that to some extent in every industry but both of them are going to have uh, powerful people on their side of the argument um and and so i think going forward it's just going to be as a a tug of war between those those two forces um and so that means the good news is we're probably going to get some really great art out of it because now films like tar are actually being made because the balance has swung in that direction to the point where uh, corporations are okay investing in projects like that and having their name on projects like that. And Kate Blanchett might win an Oscar for Tar. Um, so you know, that's I think that's what the world will look like and the culture will look like going forward. And let me just say, uh, if we if we're ending on an optimistic note, that makes me happy because for a long time it was miserable, um, and that's for like five or so years we were at a point where it was just impossible um, to to make anything um in a, in a mainstream space that sort of subverted the orthodoxy yeah i was just going to say this is this is an I've been an optimistic episode we've talked about at least glimmers of breakthroughs here in, in the corporate capitalist world with must potentially proving uh that you can run a tech company um not with with not only uh by granting free speech but but also by firing a lot of email jobbers um, we also have, you know, sort of this glimmer of hope in art with frustrated and bored audiences as well as frustrated and bored artists. Um, something we didn't get to. There is a backlash against body positivity in the fashion world. Um, so that that could be um, we'll see where where that goes. Uh, the sort of re-Kate Mossification of fashion. Um, but but yeah, I think this is this has overall been been pretty optimistic uh, ep- episode, at least by our standards. Uh, Emily, I'm I'm gonna wrap it up here. Thank you so much for for joining once again. High noon after dark. We do one of these episodes every uh, month at the end of the month. Last week of the month is always me and Emily uh, hashing out some of these trends that we thought were important from the last month or so. Uh, so thanks again for for coming on High Noon. My pleasure, Ines. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. We also have other productions like uh, She Thinks, a podcast with Beverly Hallberg, um, and At the Bar, which is a, a production with me and my colleague, Jennifer Braceris, where we talk primarily about legal topics at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Um, as always, you can send comments and questions about any of those, including High Noon, to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, uh, IWF.org, and um, YouTube as well. So be brave. We'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>